Hi, I'm Robert McGinnis. I'm the driver of the number nine Palto Network Synchros Racing for Mazda car. And welcome to the Book and the Bird Show. show just to start off with even though this is our first show after the season end um we're not going to do predictions this week we don't have wrap-up audio we're not even going to do the recording we're not going to do the full-on celebration of the win in fantasy gp this week we're not even doing that mainly because i kind of ran out of time okay so Next unlike week. every other time where you blame me that we don't have a show or that we are not ready for something, this one, not my fault. Not entirely. N- no, not, <laughs> at, not at all. Not entirely. Not at all. <laughs> not in any way, shape, or form is it my fault. No, I've, I've been working on it. Um, actually, I can blame formula one a little bit for this because they've been cracking down on what gets shared online and how it gets shared and that has made it harder to do some things that we normally do okay um so things are taking a little longer than they have in the past and that has slowed me down so yeah all righty we're working on it though hopefully next week that's my goal all right so let's just jump right in and talk about what has gone on this week for starters we have an update before we get to formula one on robert wickens and his condition um he posted a video a few days ago to both instagram and twitter in which he opens up that he is drinking coffee because the caffeine raises your blood pressure and when he stands up his blood pressure will drop and he might faint oh my but that is his long way of saying... I'm standing up. He, yes, he's working on standing up, and the video shows him getting up. Now, he's got underarm straps, and it's attached to a hoist, but he is working on standing up and working on walking again. Wow. So that's, I think, kind of huge. Well, I hope he has continued success in his recovery. So over the Formula One, we've got... A whole range of stuff to talk about. Um, <clears throat> once again, term limit or not term limits. Seriously. Tra- wow. Track limits. Completely a different thing. Yeah, than term not limits. even close. Track limits are being discussed, um, and it comes around now because of the turn that was put in in Abu Dhabi at turns twenty and twenty one, and the complaints that we're having about the the corners crumbling. Okay. Well, first off, they, they discovered what the problem was and why they were having the issue. It was actually, believe it or not, the paint. Okay. So what had happened was the, the curbs were relatively new. The concrete hadn't fully cured before they put the paint on the curbs. Okay. So as the cars were running over the curb, it was pulling up the paint, which was 
pulling up with it the uncured concrete that was underneath it. Got it. So that's where the problem was. But Charlie Whiting was also talking about track limits in general and the approach that F1, he thinks, needs to be taking around track limits. What he says is that he does not believe that black and white, every time a driver goes over the line, they should be penalized. He says that... um, a zero-tolerance policy like this is the wrong thing to do. Um, he does not believe that that's good for the sport. He says, um, as he puts it, I've said probably said countless times, leaving the track is not a penalty. Gaining an advantage from leaving the track is. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a viable difference. He says, you know, we want to make sure that every time a driver leaves the track, he doesn't gain anything from it, and preferably he loses time from it. But they want to make sure that the track enforces the limits and they don't have to resort to marshals or judges of fact reporting every time a car goes over the line. He says it's something that is dreadfully tedious and I think it demeans the sport. And I think his other piece of that is that, you know, we've seen some really great battles that go on between drivers on the edge of track limits. And he wants, he doesn't want to deter that, which I think is fair, but how you strike that balance. Yeah. He thinks the curbs are a big help to that, um, but the challenge that they run into is they can't do it at every circuit. Um, He says to implement things on circuits where you have motorcycle races, you can't have a permanent curb at most corners because it causes issues with the bikes. Um, So normally they have to ask those circuits to put down temporary curbs that they can take up for bike racing. He says, these are the sorts of problems we have to face on many different circuits. In Barcelona, there are four corners with curbs like that, but they all have to come out for MotoGP. It involves a lot of work for the the circuits to change it from one spec to the other, and trying to find a solution that works for both is very difficult. But he says they've managed to figure it out with the double curbs. He says the double curbs are quite punishing for the cars, but the bikes like them. So they've got something that the circuits don't have to change. Oh, okay. So, and if you remember what those double curbs are is basically you've got a bit of a dip or you've got a bit of a curb on the inside of the curb itself, and then you've got the, the red and white lines, and then there's something else on the other side of that. The bikes seem to like that. Okay. Well, it, it's difficult because these tracks are not dedicated solely to F1. They would they would not be able to exist if that was the only kind of car racing that was on yeah, there's those not tracks. Events, so oh, the only events that are on those tracks. So they have to be able to be flexible. Um, but track limits, I get Charlie's statement of it should be the track enforcing the limits so that you lose time when you go over the curbs or exceed the track limits and not gain an advantage. I think there's just some corners throughout all of this all of the season that drivers consistently cross and leverage the track, you know, they push those track limits because mm-hmm. they are gaining an advantage. Yeah. And um that's when it becomes more problematic is when it's not being enforced by the track. In other news, Ross Braun has come out pretty harshly about the status of the midfield teams. 
Um, in particular, he says that it is unacceptable that midfield teams have scored just two podiums since 2017. So the two podiums that we've seen, we had last year Lance Stroll, of all people, got a third place in Azerbaijan, and then a year later Sergio Perez got a third place at Azerbaijan. But those are the only two races in the last two years that a midfield team has managed to score a podium. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to look at it another way, this past year there was a 297-point gap between third place and fourth place in the Constructor Series. That's, in, that's an incredible chasm. Now, admittedly, some of this is because we've had more races— and there were changes to the points gap to, to the point system itself in 2010. So it's one of the reasons why this is the biggest gap. That we, but that's still huge. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, he wants to make changes. We don't have a great solution for making those changes. I mean, we're, hopefully we're not looking at success ballast or something along those lines. But outside of maybe cost caps, I'm not sure what they can do. And, and, you know, we run into all the questions we've had around cost caps. Yeah, I hesitate to react because if I do, it's going to become an hour-long rant on what is wrong. And I don't think that the artificial answers that they're trying to come up with are actually going to solve the problem. But... It's, it's also, it's something that's gotten worse over the years. Mm-hmm. So in 2014, when we first went to the turbo hybrid era, six different teams managed to get on a podium in 2014. Okay. In 2015, Force India and Williams, actually, in, in 2015, there were six teams that got on the podium that year too, um, but only two in 2016, one in 2017, one in 2018. Okay. So he he's he says that Ross says that he really doesn't want to refer to what's going on in the midfield as a secondary championship, but in a lot of ways that's kind of what they've built out. And it's not to knock the process the the progress that Renault saw this year. For Renault to end up in fourth, given where things have been, it's a big accomplishment for them. But Do we know if they would have ended up in fourth if Force India had been able to keep all their points? We don't know for sure. I think the way things were shaping up, it would have been closer. Well, it, it definitely would have been closer, but we probably would have seen a battle, a three-way battle between Haas, Force India, and Renault. Okay. If that had happened. Just curious. So, I'm sorry. We have to talk about something you don't like. We won't spend long on it, but the new tire tender has been awarded. Unsurprisingly, it went to Pirelli. The other bidder was Hankook Tires. But coming with this change, we'll, and, and this contract is for 2020 to 2023, coming with this change is a change to the overall structure of the tires and going to have a bigger impact on car design in general because in 2021 the series will be moving from 13 inch wheels to 18 inch wheels which means thinner sidewalls this is something that michelin was fairly 
insistent that needed to happen. Pirelli kind of wanted them to do, I think some of the other groups wanted them to do as well. But why this has a big impact is, as a reminder, what the teams have done with the wider sidewall is the tires are an integral part of the suspension of the system with the sidewall taking up some of the lateral movement that they deal with. Right. So now you bring on these thinner tires that changes how the entire suspension design needs to be of these cars. That has the potential to shake a few things up. But one of the big questions is, well, okay, Formula One's decided to do this, but we haven't had an agreement on what the rules are going to be for 2021. Mm-hmm. Why is, how is it that Formula One is doing this and the FIA is mandating this when the teams haven't agreed to what the cars are going to look like for 2021? Well, according to the regulation package for 2021, um, this doesn't need to go through the Formula One Commission, and it doesn't need to go through the strategy group, specifically because of the fact that this is a rule change for 2021. The teams don't have to agree on it. If FIA wants to turn around and say, this is what you're going to do, guess what? That's what they're going to do. Okay. Since there's no commercial agreements, there's no regulation in place for 2021, FIA gets to do this, which in a way makes you wonder why FIA hasn't stepped in and dealt with some of the other issues at this point. This seems to be an open window and an open opportunity for the FIA to step in and dictate some car design changes, dictate some other factors around the series to address issues that everyone has been talking about and saying is a problem, but nobody wants to agree on. I don't I don't have a response to that because it seems very logical that if you are free to make the changes just so long as you push them far enough out that there's no agreement yet that would require that the teams have unanimous agreement to these changes, then do it. But you know what the answer is going to be. They don't like to do that because what happens is a Ferrari will come along and go, if you make that change, I'm leaving. Yeah. Well, that's, and I've got enough time to pull out. But, but the thing is, technically, based on the agreements that are in place, the governance structure that we have, the strategy group, the F1 commission, all of those various things, they're only through till 2020. Mm-hmm. Nothing else is there. So they could push this stuff. Yeah. I don't know. So what else is changing around these tires? Well, even though we have seen a lot of criticism this year about tire degradation and how bad it was and how drivers, especially on some tracks, were driving significantly slower to manage the tires, um, Pirelli came out and said, hey, the degradation levels that we saw, these were exactly what we were told to do. They didn't degrade more than expected. They didn't do anything that we were not mandated to do by the series and by the FIA. We gave you what you asked for. Um, They have set out for next year at least um, to improve the performance of the higher compounds. Um, So these are the, the hard, the medium, the soft, those compounds. They were considered initially too conservative, and they wanted to widen the performance gap of the softer end of the range. 
um, they're going to change the naming compounds of the tires. So we are not going to have, as we mentioned before, eight compounds from hyper, super, mega, ultra soft all the way up to hard. <laughs> it is going away. We will just have the hard, medium, and soft compound tires that will all that will appear at a race. Um, there is going to be a range of compounds, though. Um, they haven't sorted out as to how many it's going to be. It's going to go down definitely from seven to either five or six. Um, they will be referred to internally among the teams by number. So one being the hardest compound, five or six being the softest compound. But in terms of on a race weekend, you will have the hard tire, the medium tire, and the soft tire, regardless of the combinations that are put into place. Um, According to Pirelli, the compounds that they're developing for next year have a slightly bigger performance gap compared to this year. Um, but the soft tire, which will be known as the three, is unchanged in its composition. Um, the hard and medium performance is a bit better than in 2018, according to Mario Azola. They're a bit closer to the soft because this year nobody was going to use the hard because they believe the hard is not at the right level of performance. So they move the medium a bit closer to the soft, and a hard is a bit closer to the medium. And the super soft has been deleted and does not have an equivalent in the new range. So the big deal there is that gives a much bigger gap in performance between your three tire and your four tire. Okay. So it should actually matter with this stuff. One would hope. That That's the hope. Um in terms of deadlines for tire nominations, Australian Grand Prix is a week earlier than it was last year. Okay. Um, as a result, the first tire nominations for the first race of the season will be announced next weekend. <laughs> we are that close, people. <laughs> Teams are already thinking about tires for race one. Which is the last thing I'm thinking about for race one, just by the way. <laughs> it. It is, but on the other hand, we're already thinking about race one for 19. That just means that you're already counting down till race one of 19. Can you blame me? No, you're already like, you know, having the F1 equivalent of the DTs to, I'm as not you are that bad. waiting for the next race. I mean, to go three whole months without a race. If I was that bad, I'd be watching Formula E. Ooh. I'm kind of surprised that you're not. Oh, come on. You might be. You have been known to do it in the past. Yeah, you know, just a little bit of Formula E to take the edge off. No, it's because it was bored and there was nothing else on. And, oh, just look, I can stream it, stream it on Channel 5. <laughs> just a little to take the edge off is all you're doing. Yeah, moving on. Um, I know you were concerned and wondering what was going to happen with Haas's intent to appeal the decision yeah, around Racing Force night. India. I was very worried. It was kept keeping me up. They will not appeal the decision. That's good to hear. What we don't know is whether or not that decision is, however, going to form the basis of a further push from Haas to stop Force India from receiving payments. Because, again, they did say Haas, or, or excuse me, that Race Point Force India is a new entity. Mm -hmm. Which means, as a new entity, they shouldn't get the money that they are looking that it is looking like they would get. Got it. So, the drama is over, but it might not be over yet. 
which is, by the way, what I thought was going to happen. Mm-hmm. So we watched the Channel 4 coverage of Abu Dhabi last weekend, which was live. Right. And we knew at one point, based on the graphics that came across the screen, and, and I only saw it once, but based on the graphics that came across the screen at the end of the race, Fernando Alonso got himself a five-second time penalty for cutting corners. Correct. In the closing stages of the race. The reality was, despite the one time that we saw that graphic, it happened three times. Well, that's the way he got the penalty, is he had to cut the corner. No, 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 no. He cut the corner three times. He got three penalties. Oh, really? He got a penalty for every time. he. And oh, by the way, he got a penalty point for every single time he did it. On top of the three five-second penalties, which set him back 15 seconds, but still didn't change his position in the race. Got it. So I went looking for the audio, and I couldn't find it, but apparently he was running around in 11th place. At some point in this whole thing, um, the team radioed to Fernando and tried to get him to push so that he could get one last point in in his final race in Formula One. And Fernando radioed back that he already had 1,800 points. One more wasn't going to (laughs) matter. Okay. So I think that made it pretty clear as to where Fernando's mindset was in those final three races of that, or the final three laps of that race. Now, Charlie Whiting was asked about this as to why, you know, you just had a driver who not once, not twice, but three times cut corners on the track and got penalties, and all you did was give him a couple of five-second penalties. What's the deal here? Um, Well, Charlie admitted that the stewards were kind of surprised that he did this. Okay. They were caught completely off guard. They weren't expecting it. And as a result, they just gave him the the, the penalty each time because – they, it was so deliberate, so blatant, and so flagrant that they were completely off guard by it. Um, what he said is that, you know, it was the end of the race, and I don't think it would have been very nice to give someone like Fernando a black flag in his last race, do you? I don't think the black flag was ever discussed. Because <laughs> everyone else was like, really, you just let him keep doing it? He's Fernando. He plays by his own set of rules. Especially in his last race. Oh, yeah. And I think we've seen that in the last few years of that he's just gone off and done his own thing. You know, he sat in a he he's run the camera. He sat in a lawn chair. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's because he pretty much had given up at that point. But and 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 this is no different. I just gave up. Yeah. Like, I'll just do my own thing. Charlie was also asked about. Um the dramatic crash with Nico Hulkenberg Mm -hmm. and what appeared to be confusion and delay in the response to his crash. Really? Yes. Well, listening to the radio messages. Okay, so we had this slow motion rollover crash, and I'm not going there. I know what you're trying for, and I'm ignoring it. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was just thinking that Nico Hulkenberg's radio message was the best one I've ever heard. What, that he's on fire, get me out now? No, oh. I'm hanging here like a cow. Well, yeah, it was that. <laughs> um, but, you know, that dramatic slow motion crash that ended up with the car resting upside down on the barrier. Mm-hmm. 
what we couldn't see and what we don't know was how much space was left between the car and the barrier and how easy it would have been for Nico to get out of the car. We heard the comment from Nico about him hanging upside down like a piece of cattle. Um, we also know that at one point he expressed concern about the car being on, on fire while he was still in the car. And it certainly seemed like it took a long time for him to come out of the car. Mm -hmm. I mean, he didn't get out of the car until enough folks got over there for them to flip the car off the barrier. Right. According to Charlie, that, that he says that the halo was not a factor in the delay in him getting him out. Now, we don't know why, given what Nico had to say, that he didn't try and get out, especially mm -hmm. with the comments about him saying that there was a fire in there and saying, get me out. We don't know what, why that delay was, but one of the things that Charlie said is that it was the reminder that when they put the halo in, every driver had to qualify when it came to getting out of the car and extracting themselves from the car. Even with the halo in place, it's like five seconds I had to get out of the car. Mm -hmm. And the way it works of is that okay, every driver has to get out of the car within five seconds. If you don't do it the first time, you get to try again. Right. And you get to keep trying until you do it. And I think that even applies if the car is upside down. Yeah. So Charlie is fairly insistent on that the halo was not a factor here. Okay. I, I have watched... In ideal circumstances, and I realize there's no rush to get out of the car mm -hmm. when they're parked at the podium ceremonies and things like that. But there is a machinations that have to be done for them to clear that halo. Oh, definitely. I do not understand. And this is honest because I don't know everything. And that's now on recorded record. I don't understand why there is not some magical quick release that could happen where it's locked in place, but it takes a very specific button push somewhere in the system to release, just like the, the to release the halo. But well, there's that cap that goes around the, the headrest. The headrest piece. That piece just pops out, and obviously downforce keeps it in. Well, I wouldn't necessarily expect well, downforce to be two, keeping. It, it actually doesn't. There, there's two clips, clips that, that are in place. Because remember, if those clips aren't engaged, the, the air moving around the car actually will suck the headrest out of the car. We've seen that with Lewis. Yeah. Um, um, but the seatbelts have a quick release to pop the harness off. So in theory, there should be something. Now, what... Charlie points out is that even when the car is upside down, the halo shouldn't impact egress from the cockpit of the car because the halo actually gives more space for the driver to pull themselves out. What I don't know is because of the angle that the car was sitting in the barrier and the fact that those barriers are designed to compress is whether or not that was truly the issue of, yes, the halo gave him enough room that he could move around, but because the barrier itself compressed and would have compressed even if there was no halo there, that that was the issue. Well, 
Okay, and keep in mind, he was not 100% upside down. He was at an angle up against the barrier. Right. So but I the do- top of the car was against the barrier. Right. And I don't, we don't know how much room he really had mm-hmm. and how much of that. And I, I grant all of those things. But it did seem like it was a long time. I have a sense that Nico was a little panicked by the radio messages that he was sending over. Yeah. Even trying to control his panic, I think he was a little panicked. Which also seemed a little odd, but I don't think that Nico has been in a rollover crash before. Not one that in Formula One that we know of. Yeah. Um, but I think there was a little bit of panic there. I know that the medical crew, before they even got the car flipping back over so Nico could get out, the medical crew was there talking yeah. to him. And it was the car was not moved until the medical crew... Um, cleared them to move it and move it to a certain way to get him out. Yeah. So, yeah, it, th- this is not going to lead to the halo going away. No. This is, and and we're not leading a halo bashing con- contest again. No, I we're just still that. think that there should be some sort of quick release on it. And I'm sure that there's going to be lessons learned, and they're going to look at ways that they could potentially change this, but. You know, we've seen a couple of times where the Halo has some role in an impact this year. Yeah. Now that we're at the end of the season and racing is over for a stretch, drivers are going on break, drivers are taking part in some extracurricular activities. Eating their first full meal in 21 races. Some of that, too. Um Lewis Hamilton, in some of his extracurricular activities, took part in a superbike track day in Jerez uh, this week. Okay. Um, he's a better F1 driver than he is a superbike driver. I think he knew that. <laughs> um, he was riding a Yamaha YZF-R1, for those of you who that means something to. Um, it is the same bike used in the World Superbike Championship uh, by the Works Back Crescent team um, when he suffered a crash. Now, he is okay. It was a small crash, um, and it did hold up the his day a little bit, but he did ride some more afterwards. But he did crash. It appears that he is a better Formula One driver than he is a superbike rider. Well, I somebody asked him once about MotoGP, mm-hmm. and he said that that scared him. So I don't foresee not him. MotoGP NASCAR. NASCAR scared him. Yeah, because he wants to do. He, he's he mentioned to before do Moto- he wants to do MotoGP, MotoGP, and he rides motorcycles quite a bit. Okay. Um. Also, this time of year, you know, as is traditional with most organizations, you get to the end of your business year and <clears throat> employees and employers are doing their reviews and their self-reviews. Oh, we're going through that again. And 360-degree feedback and all of those various performance analysis tools start to come into play. So Lewis is the first one who has been talking. Mm-hmm. He did a little bit of 360-degree feedback on his organization. Um, He thinks that it is fantastic um, how everything has been. He says that he thinks this year, if you look at the team's performance on race weekends, the mechanics, the engineers, the strategists, they've all raised their game. And arguably, on the strategy side, compared to the start of the year, the strategists did get better. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
They did. They, they figured had out some, their math problem. Yeah, they had some bad strategy calls at the start of the year. Um, but he says that, that they've all raised their game. He says it's never, ever been perfect. Neither of us as drivers, but collectively as a team, I think we really need to elevate ourselves, which is, again, inspiring for me and encourages me to go out there and not want to let them down. He says, I'm confident as long as Mercedes don't change their approach and don't change their desire to win. Some teams decide to veer off and do some other business venture and lose a bit of focus on the main ultimate goal. As long as they don't do that, I believe that we'll be able to stay on this path and continue to fight at the top. Interestingly, he says this as Mercedes prepares to enter Formula E. Yeah, I'm sure that's not what he meant. Can't be at all related. No. Can't be at all related. He says that... Ferrari has been doing an amazing job this year. We've got to keep the hammer down, keep pushing as they will be, see how close they are right now. And look at Valtteri. He's been driving exceptionally well all year. I know next year again, third year with the team, he will be even quicker, so we will have to discover new skills for next year. Didn't Valtteri say that this was his worst year ever in all of Formula One? Well, we're going to get to that, but I thought that was an interesting comment. Well, I think that that's a comment based on Lewis be, trying to be a team player. Yeah. He's, I mean, and you have to hand it to Lewis. And, you know, sometimes I go, you know, that's a little trite and you couldn't possibly mean it. But I actually think some days Lewis really means it. But have you ever noticed that all of his um, his set speeches, the podiums, the qualifying team interviews, fans. the team interviews, and all those types of things, it always always starts with, I want to thank my fans for coming out and supporting us. Mm-hmm. I want to thank the team for supporting me. I want to give a nod to Valtteri for how awesome he is because he came in sixth. Whatever those things were, it is always... And it's, it's, it's almost like it's predictable. And it's so predictable, it almost becomes trite. But he always does those things. Thanks the fans, thanks yeah. the team, thanks his teammate. And calls out something that, you know, his competitor did well before he gets into the, yeah, I'm pretty good. Well, uh, along those same lines, um, and, and I think illustrative of the relationship that Lewis and Seb have for each other, even as... This championship got heated, and admittedly, the video that was posted on social media, I think by Lewis, um, was really kind of cheesy, but it is a gesture of respect that the two of them have for each other. Lewis and Seb, after the race in Abu Dhabi, swapped helmets. I don't know if it was the exact helmets they wore in Abu Dhabi, but they swapped helmets. Oh, here's my sweaty helmet. I'll take your sweaty helmet. Ew. The, the reason why it was done, though, is, again, sign of respect of, of you know, I, I think a lot of you, this has been a really good season. Here, here's my helmet as a sign of respect to you, and, and the other driver does the same. But a lot of the soccer teams do this as well. The football teams do this as well. That in, in a heated championship battle, the teams will swap jerseys at the end of it as a sign of respect for their competitor and recognize all of their efforts as well. So that that's where this comes from. Or it's the helmet of my conquered or the jersey of the conquered. In kind, kind of, but even the guy who loses gets the helmet of the yeah. victor. Now, one of the things that was discovered is apparently Seb has a small head. 
Shocking. He, he wears a size small helmet. Lewis does not. <laughs> they did try on each other's helmets. Seb can get his head into Lewis's helmet. Lewis can partially get his head into Seb's. Oh, my. <laughs> Are you saying Seb's a pinhead? No, I'm saying he has a smaller head. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, Seb also is doing a bit of um, reflection and self-review. Um, he says that he was not at the top of his game this year. Wow. I didn't notice. Oh, I thought everybody else was going, oh, you think? <laughs> I was being sarcastic. Even Toto Wolf said you're not at your game. I mean, come on. Well, there were parts of the year he was. And then he would make, and, and he's done this in the past, he, the, the silly mistakes, the dumb mistakes that caught him out. And it's happened a little more often this year, I think, than in previous years. But Vettel's own comments here is naturally the year I've had. I don't think I've ever had any problems raising my hand if I made a mistake. And he's right there. Knowing how quickly things can go wrong, how quickly things could have gone differently this year, I have to review a couple of things. But there's other things that I think went wrong and don't need a lot of reviewing and not overcomplicating things too much. I think I know what I need to do. Certainly here and there, looking back, I haven't been at the top of my game. So I look at myself first. I think I can be better than I was at times this year. And, you know, where I think you do need to give him credit is the fact that he's not saying the team failed me. He's not calling out the team. I mean, he, he does at some point and, and say that there is that the team could have been better. But that's not his first thing. Mm -hmm. His first thing is the self-introspection that I played a game here. I'm the guy behind the wheel, and I didn't do as well as I should have. He is correct. He did not do very well this year. Now back to Valtteri. Yes, Valtteri has said... He believes that this year is has been his worst year in Formula One, which, if you look at his record, seems a little odd. Because his first year in Formula One, he was driving for Williams, and Williams was struggling at the back of the grid. Mm -hmm. So there were no podiums on offer. They were struggling to get points just in general. So when you see that he's had string of fifth place finishes, he's been on the podium while he hasn't won any races for him to say this is worst year in Formula One can seem a little odd. Except? Well, what he views it as is his first year in Formula One, his goal, his target that he had was to fight for points, was to get points. That was it. No. There was no reasonable expectation to really do much more with that car. This year, especially after last year, his target was to win races. His target was to be more competitive, and if he wasn't winning races, to at least be right behind Lewis. And that he didn't do this year. And he unfortunately didn't do it consistently. And I think that that's one of those things where all the commentators talk about how you are compared to your teammate. Mm-hmm. So here's a situation. You have the constructor winning car, a world champion teammate. Theoretically, if you are driving at that level, if you are competing and pushing, you should be number two. Mm -hmm. Didn't he fall to fourth in the championship or fifth in the championship? I think he fell to fourth in the final standings. But 
yeah, I mean, you're, you're driving the Constructors' Championship car. You should be, if not second as the number two driver on that team, but a super close third. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you should have been much closer. And, and it wasn't all his fault. No. There were incidents at the beginning of the season, whether it was mechanical failure, whether it was that blowout in Azerbaijan oh, that, that he should have, have been, won that race. That should have been his. He, he It wasn't entirely his fault, and I'm not going to go and give him a hard time for the team orders. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a team player. He, he recognized who's signing his checks, and he did what— what he needed to, and whether that was a right or wrong decision is irrelevant, I think, at this point. Yeah. But there were other times that he just, he should have been better, and he tended to fade back where we sh- we didn't expect him to do that. Yeah. And that is a problem. But he's got a strategy for next year, correct? Well, what he says is his strategy for next year is he wants to adopt the drive it like a stole it attitude and treat every Formula One race in 2019 like it's his last. I'd be interested to see how that works for him. Well, it, it, it truly depends on what that means to Valtteri. Because as we have seen, if you overdrive the car, you don't get better, and, and Max finally started to recognize that a little bit. Mm-hmm. If he puts himself in that kind of a situation, even Seb has done that a few times this year, we're not going to see the better Valtteri. We're going to see a problem. If that means that he recognizes where he needs to back off and where he needs to push harder and can push harder, it could be a different story. Don't know yet. Um, but the other thing that's kind of driving this besides the fact that he's still on a one-year agreement is now you have Esteban Ocon who is the reserve driver waiting in the wings over at Mercedes and and while yes he he always was kind of waiting in the wings there was Force India to deal with before Force India is not an issue if Valtteri's not performing and Mercedes gets fed up they don't have to wait very long they've got somebody they can put in and put in right away oh yeah and that's a concern. Daniel Ricardo has said his final goodbyes to the Red Bull factory. Oh, did he have his exit interview? Um, he did his exit interview, the going away luncheon. It actually started, the day started, um, with a ride on drift bikes around the facility with Max Verstappen. Okay. Um, after that, both drivers participated in an autograph session for the staff um, that lasted almost two hours. Oh, wow. Now, given how I don't like writing stuff for more than 15 minutes, I can't imagine what that's like signing stuff for two hours. I bet the uh, last person in line had a really sloppy signature. May have been a stamp at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Um. He also got to address the entire factory team along with some other folks. They, they, they showed a highlights video titled hashtag cheers Dan of all of uh, his time there with the team. Um, during his time to address the factory, uh, he got to explain some of his more 
colorful quotes that he's made, um, which we won't repeat. Okay. Let's let's just leave it at, leave it at that. Um, Holy starts with T Tuesday. Um, tripping major ends with N, not the other word, but a different word about things that hang and hold nuts and leave it at that. Um, he, he got to talk about some of that stuff with the team. Okay. Where the, those colorful colloquialisms might come from. Um, he was presented with a parting gift from the team, um, a KTM 350 SFX motorbike. Um, it was delivered to him by Doogie Lamp- Lampkin, who is a big idol and a close friend of Daniel's and the man who inspired Daniel to the shoey. Oh, my. He also mentioned that he had made some changes to the honey badger decal that's on the back of his helmet for Abu Dhabi, specifically in tribute to the team. So he put um, a Red Bull hat on the honey badger, gave it wings, and a Red Bull can. Ah. Uh, he said, the wings are significant for Red Bull, but also for my departure. I thought it would be a nice little gesture. Honey Badger, he's sipping some Red Bull and basically saying cheers for the memories. Um, but he also mentioned that um, this, this whole experience of leaving the team and all of the tributes and everything that's happened um, has made him think about retirement overall in general and actually really happy of the fact that he's not leaving the sport and he's not retiring. He's just, as he puts it, going next door. Um, he appreciates all the tributes, but he's very happy that this is not an not the end. It's okay. an end, but not the end, because he's not ready to retire yet, which I think we're all happy to hear. Yes. <laughs> I like him. He's a good guy. So with Pierre Gasly leaving Toro Rosso and taking Daniel's seat, we knew that we were going to get yet another turn with Daniel Kvyat, who... On one hand, if you're Daniel Kvyat, yay, I'm back in Formula One. On the other hand, whoopee-doo, I'm, I'm out the door at some point. This is, there's no way this is going to be a permanent engagement in Formula One. Mm-hmm. You, you're, you're, you're basically being a seat warmer. Um, but we know who is going to be partnering with Daniel Kvyat for next year. So the last seat is finally being announced. The last seat has been announced. Um, Alexander Albin, who has been confirmed... Um, to come drive with Toro Rosso. Now, what was holding up Alexander? For, well, before we even get to that as to who he is, um, he had been driving in Formula 2 alongside George Russell and Lando Norris, came in second in the championship this year. Right. Um, but what held him up was that he was under a deal to go drive in Formula E over the winter. Oh. He was released by the Formula E team so that he could come over to... Uh, Formula One and replace Brendan Hartley. Okay. And in a bit of news that surprises absolutely nobody. Okay. <laughs> Force India announced this week that Lance Stroll will be driving for the team in 2019. No. I know. You're kidding. Yeah. I'm shocked. Yeah. We don't. Um. We don't know how long the deal is. It was announced as a quote. Long-term deal. For as long as Daddy owns the team. Or he doesn't kill himself. 
Let's let's not wish that on anybody. So he, d- as long as he does not severely break the car to the point that he cannot drive it right. permanently. Okay. Yes, he is in a long-term deal, sitting alongside um, Sergio Perez. Also confirmed this week, and this was confirmed not by the team, but by the official F1 2019 entry list. The new team for what was formerly known as Racing Point Force India will just just be Racing Point F1. Okay. The Force India will be dropped for the team for the first time since 2007. Okay. Um, We also have the official entry list with numbers for everybody but one driver. Who? Um, Albin's number has not been agreed on yet. Okay. Um, Unchanged Lewis and and Valtteri at Mercedes. Um, Lewis running under 44, Valtteri at 77. Uh, Sebastian Vettel, as expected, will continue to race under number five, and Charles Leclerc at number 16. Red Bull Honda Pierre Gasly will race under the number 10, alongside number three, number 33, Max Verstappen. Number three will be Daniel Ricciardo at Renault, partnered with number 27, Nico Hülkenberg. Um, Haas stays the same with Roman Grosjean, number eight, and number 20, Kevin Magnussen. Um, McLaren will be Lando Norris running under number four, and Carlos Sainz continuing to run under number 55. Racing Point will be number 11, Sergio Perez, and number 18, Lance Stroll. Kimi Raikkonen will race with number seven for Sauber, and Antonio Giovinazzi will be running the number 99. Um, Daniel Kvyat, 26 for Toro Rosso. Like we mentioned, Albin is undecided on a number as of yet. And over at Mercedes, George Russell, or excuse me, over at Williams, not Mercedes. It's listed here as Williams Mercedes, and I'm like, we know this. But over at Williams, George Russell will be running the number 63, and Robert Kubica will be running the number 88, because it has good feng shui. Okay. (laughs) Well... Eights are very lucky numbers. I'm always amused at the number of double numbers that are in Formula One. Yeah. Yeah, we have 33, 44, 55, 99, 88, 77. I mean, all of them are double numbers. I'm always amused by that. I am horribly disappointed that no one is 42. Yeah, that is kind of surprising. I think that that is a missed opportunity. Apparently... There is no Formula One driver that is a Douglas Adams fan. I think that that is a missed opportunity. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So our last story is um, over in Abu Dhabi, the chairman of the McLaren group was present. And somebody cornered him. Actually, the BBC cornered him and asked him if there were any regrets given the season over at McLaren regarding their split with Honda and over the fact that this was arguably one of, if not the worst season and the least competitive that McLaren has been in its entire history. And whether or not the team had regrets about separating from Honda, especially seeing that the Honda in the Toro Rossos, which admittedly the Toro Rossos are never going to be best of the grid, 
but Toro Rosso performed about where you would expect a Toro Rosso to perform, mm -hmm. and they didn't have a ton of mechanical failures, and they didn't have a ton of issues. Was McLaren regretting the move? So Sheikh Mohammed bin Essa Al Khalifa, who is the chairman of the group, admitted that this was an expensive decision for them to do. There were penalties to be made, that, to be paid for breaking that contract, but it was in the long-term interests of the company. Um, he did say in talking about um, the car and the performance, um, Zach Brown admitted that, well, this car is not good. We knew that. But he said that, or Sheikh Mohammed said that we are confident we know why we haven't been able to develop this year's car. There is a fundamental problem with it, and we think we've addressed it. He says, I don't think, he said, I don't know if we want to disclose what we have discovered and why, but we have taken steps, and the development of next year's car has helped us understand what went wrong here. Um, he said that the analysis that they did did not confirm what was wrong until after the summer break. He said if they had discovered the issues in April, they would have made changes. They would have ha come out with a B-spec car. But when it was so late in the season, it was too late to do it. They were already focused on 19 to go and build out that B-spec car made no sense. Mm. But he says that they have figured out what the fundamental flaw was with the car. Okay. All we know is that when we get to Barcelona in February, we'll know if they figured out the true answer or if they managed to break something else. Well, we won't actually know until they race in Melbourne because Barcelona is sandbagged and you know that. It, it is to some extent, but depending on how far off the car is and, you know, folks looking at the engine noise and how the cars enter the corners and things of that nature, there are some intelligent guesses that can be made as to the general performance of the car and whether or not they've made a step forward compared to the previous year or a step back. Now, whether or not it's a step forward compared to everybody else, that's where you have to wait until Australia. Right. But just as to whether or not they've built a car that's sound and is working, that we can see in February. I got it. All right. Are we ready for February now? Yeah. We're going to try and wrap up the, the final bits and pieces that we have to do before we, we get out of the – we officially close out the 2018 season. Um, I'm Like I said, we'll target to do that next week and have all of that ready for that. Um, again, congratulations to Phil on your win with more to come on that later. I think I should be congratulated on my win over you. I won the last race. Yeah, but I beat you in the league. You know, I think what I need to do is not just look at the points, but I think we need to look at the overall number of wins per race compared to everybody else. And, you know, maybe have a discussion as to who is a deserving champion <laughs> and who is not a deserving champion because, you know, it's not just about whether or not, but, you know... <laughs> Okay, is, Rosberg. Is, is this a Nico Rosberg win or is this a Lewis Hamilton win? No. <laughs> the one thing I can say for sure is the boy, last place. Yeah, he, he kind of pulled a Fernando Alonso towards the end of the season. Oh, yeah, he totally did. He totally did. He was moving on. All righty. And on that note, 
we'll call it a show. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. <laughs> a little break? Okay.